guilty verdict means for the R&B singer and gripping witness testimony in the Mennonite murder trial. Hear from the camper who discovered Sasha Krause's body. Plus, decades later, President Ronald Reagan's attempted assassin will be unconditionally released. Why his attorneys say it's a step in the right direction. And later... The laundry should not help us find Gabby. It sure is not going to help us find Brian. The FBI search for Brian Laundry stretches into another day as Gabby Petito's family speaks for the first time since her funeral. Long Crime Daily, covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome to Law and Crime Daily. I'm Simon Chowdhury, along with Terry Austin. Guilty. That's the verdict for famed R&B singer R. Kelly. And after nine hours of deliberation, a jury found Kelly guilty on all charges. The trial lasted for six weeks as Kelly faced a slew of sex crimes, including sex trafficking and racketeering, specifically forming an enterprise to traffic minors for sex. The jury found Kelly guilty of all nine counts against him, which included eight violations of the Mann Act, an anti-sex trafficking law. Fifty witnesses took the stand, including former employees and 11 victims, all detailed what they witnessed and experienced with the singer. Emotional testimonies in the courtroom were accusers detailed being locked in rooms without food or water for days and other times when Kelly knowingly transmitted STDs to his victims. Kelly's sentencing is set to take place on May 4th, where he faces life in prison. After the verdict, U.S. Attorney, US Attorney Jacqueline Sakulis sent a message to the brave victims who testified. Today's guilty verdict forever brands R. Kelly as a predator who used his fame and fortune to prey on the young, the vulnerable, and the voiceless for his own sexual gratification. To the victims in this case, your voices were heard and justice was finally served. This conviction would not have been possible without the bravery and resilience of R. Kelly's victims. I applaud their courage in revealing in open court the painful, intimate, of their lives with him. No one deserves what they experienced at his hands or the threats and harassment they faced in telling the truth. Well, on top of this week's conviction, Kelly faces other state and federal charges in Chicago, Illinois. Now we're joined by co-host Terry Austin and legal analyst Julie Rendleman. And Julie, this is a huge victory in terms of the so-called Me Too movement. What could a case like this mean for the future of sexual assault cases, especially as some accusers don't pursue charges until years later? Well, look, I mean, I think it started with Harvey Weinstein. I, I think we were watching uh, the change begin then because this was a case that was different than the normal ones we usually saw uh, going to trial. Older cases, more complicated cases, and the unique thing about R. Kelly's case is you know, the federal prosecutors use the law that they really never use. They use the racketeering law, uh, which is usually saved for cases like the mafia. So this really tells into
individuals, certainly those who are committing these type of crimes, that they're going to go after you, and they're going to go after you in different ways. And this shows not only are they going to go after you, but they're going to be potentially successful, regardless of how many years ago the alleged crimes occurred. And Terry, what's next for R. Kelly, and how many years is he facing in prison? Well, he is facing dozens of years. We know it's 20 years for the racketeering, 10 for the Mann Act violations, and there were eight of those counts. So we know he will be in prison for quite some time. But he is facing charges in Northern District of Illinois, which is federal court for child pornography and obstruction of justice. And also in Cook County, Illinois, which is a state court, he is facing charges there for sexual abuse. And don't forget, he is also facing charges in Minnesota for prostitution involving a 17-year-old girl. All right, thanks, Terry. And again, he will be sentenced for what happened at the federal trial in May 4th of next year. All right, now an update in the Pike County Massacre. The eldest son of George Wagner asked the court to dismiss his murder charges and the possibility for the death penalty. Attorneys for George Wagner IV now say he did not shoot or kill any of the victims, despite 2019 court documents that say he shot each victim personally. Wagner and the rest of his family were charged in the 2016 Rodin family murders of seven adults and a teenage boy. A motion filed by Wagner's attorneys say in order to seek the death penalty, DNA, biological, or video evidence needs to be provided linking Wagner to the murders. All this comes after Wagner's mother, Angela, and brother Jake pleaded guilty to charges earlier this year. And in California, Joseph Jimenez officially pleads not guilty to the murders of TikTok stars Riley Goodrich and Anthony Barajas. The two teenagers were shot and killed in July while at a movie theater in Southern California. Goodrich died at the scene and Barajas died after being taken to the hospital. Jimenez appeared in court on Monday where his attorney entered the pleas for him. The 20-year-old pleads not guilty to the murders on the grounds of insanity. Attorneys are set to meet again on October 22nd to discuss the appointment of a defense psychiatrist. We're still ahead on Law and Crime Daily. The man who shot President Ronald Reagan set to be unconditionally released. But first, the Mennonite murder trial will bring you the chilling testimony of the woman who discovered Sasha Krause's body. Dan Abrams with exciting news for all of our Law & Crime followers on YouTube. You can now get the live Law & Crime Network with YouTube TV for all of your daily live trial coverage, legal news, expert analysis, and original true crime programs. Subscribe to YouTube TV today and then locate Law & Crime in the channel guide. And for only $1.99 a month, you can add the network to your bundle. Watch Law & Crime every day with
against COVID. The drug maker submitting data to the FDA showing its vaccine is safe and effective in kids 5 to 11. But what about children even younger? What Pfizer's CEO is saying, also the debate over boosters. Can you mix and match them? Dr. Fauci here answering your questions, plus the battle over vaccines in the NBA. What LeBron James revealed today. Also tonight, President Biden contradicted by his own military advisors after he claimed none of them warned him to keep a small number of troops in Afghanistan to prevent a Taliban takeover. What the generals told Congress and how the White House is responding. The battle lines being drawn among Democrats. The president leading negotiations to save his multi-trillion dollar agenda with a government shutdown potentially just days away. New clues in the deadly Amtrak derailment. What investigators hope to learn from the train's black box. Barack Obama breaking ground in his presidential library in Chicago after a years-long fight. And the heartwarming best friend reunion caught on camera. Good evening, everyone. Pfizer today took a major step toward approval of its COVID vaccine for children ages 5 to 11, submitting trial data to the FDA for review after recently determining it is safe and well-tolerated. A vaccine suitable for younger children is a major missing piece in this country's effort to turn back the pandemic, especially with parents in many schools navigating infection outbreaks. But also today, the Biden administration saying those Pfizer booster shots for certain Americans are taking off. A million shot appointments on the books at pharmacies. 400,000 booster shots administered this past weekend. But there remain millions of others who haven't had a single shot. Vaccine mandates now forcing tough decisions for many. My conversation with Dr. Fauci in just a moment. But first, let's get the latest from Gabe Gutierrez. With millions of children now back in classrooms, today Pfizer submitted phase three data to the FDA on vaccines for five to 11 year olds, a crucial step toward emergency use authorization. Look, is another barrier of protection for the little ones. Pfizer CEO today with NBC's Craig Melvin, who asked him about even younger children under five. I believe in a couple of months, uh, we should be in a position to have uh, the date and then eventually submit before the end of the year. The 5- to 11-year-old children in Pfizer's trial were given two smaller doses of the vaccine than those given to those 12 and older. The company says the smaller doses produced antibody responses that were comparable to those seen in older people who received full doses. The vaccine also caused similar side effects to those seen in adults, including arm soreness and fatigue. Younger children are less apt to be infected, but we all know that there are children who become seriously ill. Perhaps nowhere has the debate over the future of the pandemic been so heated as in schools, where parents and administrators have clashed over mask mandates, bus driver shortages, and vaccine requirements. New York City announced overnight that teachers and staff would have until the end of the week to get vaccinated after a federal appeals court greenlighted the mandate. I think they should get vaccinated. Our kids are in there, and uh, they have to be held accountable. Less than a quarter of Americans still haven't gotten a first shot, but confusion is mounting over who should get a third. The FDA has authorized the Pfizer booster for emergency use for certain Americans. In Charleston, West Virginia, Kitty Frazier got her booster today. Not Pfizer, but Moderna, which the FDA has said can be offered to the immunocompromised. Do you think this whole rollout of the boosters has been a little confusing? Uh, extremely confusing. 
In fact, when we, got, when we came in this morning and they said you can't have the Moderna because it has not yet been uh, approved, as has the Pfizer, um, we got a little bit vexed mm -hmm. and thought, uh, well, we wasted a trip down here. But then um, when we said we were immunocompromised, they said we could have the shot. And picking up on that, Gabe, what about the idea of mixing and matching vaccines? For example, getting the first two doses of Moderna, then a booster from Pfizer. Yes, Lester, today we learned that data from the mix and match trial have been submitted to the FDA, but they're not yet publicly available. No timeline for that yet. Lester? Yeah, Gutierrez, thank you. I spoke to Dr. Fauci this afternoon about some of the confusion over booster shots, but began by asking just how many more waves of COVID surges we might face. Lester, that's up to us because we have the capability and the resources and a highly effective vaccine. We will not get another surge if we successfully get the overwhelming proportion of people vaccinated. Dr. Fauci, there are signs showing the, the booster rollout being confusing. We're seeing people who were not on the original list of eligible individuals able to get these booster shots. What is your message to the American public about boosters? When you look at the data, it does look like there's waning immunity, certainly against infection and mild to moderate disease. The CDC has made a recommendation of this essential, you know, 65 and over people in long-term care facilities, age groups for people who have underlying conditions and those in certain occupations that would put them at risk. But that, that, that's not the way it's playing out in the real world. People are getting the shots who don't fit any of those categories. That, that is correct. And the reason is we're dealing with a moving target. There is interpretation by some, well, let's just go ahead and get the booster. My prediction, uh, and this is purely my own personal uh, opinion as a physician and as a healthcare and, 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 and public health individual, is that ultimately the proper complete regimen will be a single dose followed in a few weeks by the second dose, followed several months later by the booster. As an individual who is not eligible right now officially for the booster shot, Am I and people like me, are we at a disadvantage? I don't think you're at a disadvantage, Lester, because hypothetically, if you got the two shots of either a Moderna or a Pfizer, that you still are highly, highly protected. Part of my conversation with Dr. Fauci this afternoon. Now let's get to that stunning new testimony from the country's top military officers about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan contradicting President Biden, who had claimed they never advised him to keep a small number of American troops there to prevent a Taliban takeover. Courtney Cuby has more for us tonight. Tonight, this blunt assessment from the president's top military advisor. Strategically, the war is lost. The enemy's in Kabul. All as Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, General Frank McKenzie, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin were grilled by Republicans over the chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal. Nobody has resigned. General, I think you should resign. Secretary Austin, I think you should resign. The top brass were also pressed about President Biden's claim that none of his military leaders advised him to keep at least 2,500 troops in Afghanistan to avoid a Taliban takeover. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. But remarkably today, those military advisors openly contradicting the commander-in-chief. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. 
and testifying the president did hear their advice. Did these officers, General Miller's recommendations, get to the president personally? Their input was, uh, was received by the president. Tonight, the White House responding. There were recommendations made by a range of his advisors, something he welcomed. Meanwhile, Milley went further, also contradicting President Biden's assertion that the Afghanistan withdrawal was a, quote, extraordinary success. Would you use the term extraordinary success for, the, for what took place in August in Afghanistan? It was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. And he was asked if the rushed exit that left Americans and Afghan allies behind damaged U.S. credibility. I think that damage is one word that could be used, yes. Later, Milley was pressed if he considered resigning because the president disregarded his advice. Why haven't you resigned? The president doesn't have to agree with that advice. Milley also speaking about the outgoing days of the Trump administration when he reportedly told a Chinese general, if we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. I am certain that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. General Milley also warning that al-Qaeda could rebuild itself in Afghanistan in as little as 12 months. Lester? Courtney Kuby, thank you. Tonight, Democrats control Congress but remain divided over how to move forward on two signature pieces of President Biden's agenda, while also facing a potential government shutdown. Garrett Hake is on Capitol Hill. Tonight, Democrats facing delays, divisions, and tough decisions as they struggle among themselves over moving the president's agenda forward. Speaker Pelosi planning a Thursday vote on the trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. I urge strong bipartisan support for this legislation. But progressive Democrats say they'll oppose that bill without a deal to advance Democrats' three-and-a-half trillion-dollar social and climate policy bill, too. The agreement from the very beginning, and we are, we've been talking about this for months now, is there is one big package. But the Senate's two most conservative Democrats haven't signed off on the larger bill, each meeting privately with President Biden today. Progressives think you're dragging your feet, Senator. Everybody has their own opinion, right? Congress also faces a Thursday deadline to fund the government or stumble into a shutdown. Republicans blocked the vote last night, demanding Democrats take sole responsibility for also lifting the nation's debt limit. Democrats will not get bipartisan help borrowing money so they can immediately blow historic songs on a partisan taxing and spending spree. Experts say a government default would send stock markets plunging and lead to millions of lost jobs. Congress now has just 20 days to avoid that outcome. Lester? Garrett Hake at the Capitol, thank you. In Montana tonight, new information about a potentially important focus in the investigation of that deadly Amtrak train derailment over the weekend. Did the tracks themselves play a role? Miguel Almaguer is there. Oh, my God. While clues lie in the wreckage, tonight there is increased focus on the rails. Did the tracks, their maintenance, or perhaps human error along the route play a critical role in the deadly derailment? Amtrak's black box, similar to this one in 2013, will include critical data like braking. And now front-facing cameras, like the one seen here, will show the moments just before the train left the tracks, frame by frame. The focus is on the track itself and, and on uh, the first uh, wheel of the Amtrak train that derailed. With several of the toppled cars just off the tracks, this rural Montana rail line has reopened. The company that maintains the tracks says they're regularly inspected. 
The train is destroyed out there. Right With passengers possibly ejected during Saturday's accident, almost all of the first responders that arrived were volunteers. Trevor Fosen was driving to a wedding and was the first person on scene. Some were stunned beyond belief, like they just couldn't believe what had happened. With dozens injured, three lost their lives. Don and Marjorie Barnado were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, telling friends this would be the trip of a lifetime. They're still together, living the rest of their life, so it is a trip of a lifetime. Tonight, the tragedy and the mystery, but no answers that will ease the heartbreak. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Joplin, Montana. In just 60 seconds, the NBA's biggest star gets the vaccine, but not all the players are on board. The controversy just before the season starts. Cities exist to facilitate face-to-face -face exchange between people. People were the answer to everything. You want to get good at crime and bad things people are doing, you put in there people doing good, interesting new things, and it will move things, it will break that up. stage uh, for those of you here in the auditorium and joining us uh, through Zoom and otherwise with Thomas Dija, who's author of New York, New York, New York. It's a terrific, terrific history Thank of you. New York. Thank you so much. So why don't we um, kind of begin at the beginning, which is, what's a nice guy from Chicago writing a book about New York? Uh, you, you, you had your fill uh, of book writing on Chicago, but then you came to this great city, and I'm just curious the motivation. Well, I came to this great city in 1980, so you know I'd been here for quite a while before I decided to write the book. But I, it, I wanted to. I started doing it in 2013, at the end of the Bloomberg years. Right, Blasio was going to clearly be the next mayor, so it seemed like we'd had a real kind of bookended period from Koch coming in, the kind of end of the fiscal crisis to Bloomberg was a discrete period to me in New York's history. So, um, but at the time, all the discourse going on about the city was very binary: you know, gentrification, neoliberalism, bad. Giuliani saved the city with policing, all these very kind of oppositional ideas, and none of it was really describing my lived experience of the city over these times. You know, it was much more complicated than any of those things described. So um, instead of coming up with a hypothesis and saying, I'm going to prove this thing, my publishers were kind enough to let me go back on a journey, really, to look for what the change was, who made the change, what were the ideas that created the change over this time. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, you know, I'm going to prove how this thing happened. I just put on my, you know, pith helmet and went back into the past to kind of re-examine my own life in the city in a certain way, but what that experience had been for a lot of people. So there's always something about New York, as a native New Yorker, that's magical about the place. It, it can make you very angry, it can please you in innumerable ways. Um, what is it about this city that drove you to be interested in it? Meaning, you came here, you studied at Columbia, you lived on the Upper West Side, you still live on the Upper West Side. But what is it about this city that is that, that has had you know, the sort of attraction and the allure of bringing people from all over the world? Right. Well, I mean, it's that is that crossroads of the world kind of thing, I mean, mm -hmm. where it's constantly refreshing with new people coming in from around the world, and especially during this period. Um, for me, I, I was a you know I wanted to be in the book business and be a publisher, and I wanted to write eventually. Mm -hmm. So coming to New York 
was obvious, you know, this was where the gatekeepers lived. So one of the themes of the book really is watching how that changes over time. Um, there's a whole series of different kinds of, of themes in the book, of things that change that weren't just about policy, that were about culture, that mm -hmm. were about society, mm -hmm. that twined into these other policy things, you know, that weren't easily described, and they all influence each other. So the job was trying to figure out how those things twined together, and certainly culture in that way that I came to be a part of was, was one that I was very interested in diving into. Let's start with Koch, where you began. Right. So he inherits a city from a beam, right. um, and you write in the book a lot about the fact that the city was a mess. The city had lost its way. President Ford allegedly told the city to drop dead, right. according to the New York Post headline. And you talk a lot about the absence of data, the absence of an appropriate level of organization in right. the city. Right. I mean, that's another theme that I really was looking at through the whole arc of the book, is how data, how technology had an impact on the city and its change. Um, one of the issues that the city had, it didn't have an auditable budget. Basically, the money just went in a hole, you know, and there were things that the city did with pens and paper that other cities were already doing with computers. And the famous story of one of the deputy mayors going up to Albany to talk to Hugh Carey, and they ask him about how many employees the city has, and he kind of digs out a, an envelope with some numbers scribbled on the back. I mean, it was just a lack of, of, of sense of it. And, and so James Benninger calls it a control crisis, where the city has just created so much data, and it doesn't have the tools yet to know what to do with it. So one of the foundational things that the banks and the federal government established for the city to be able to get back into the credit market was that it had to get a computerized budget system. I mean, you write that the city was incapable at the time of issuing public debt because it couldn't possibly audit its financial at all. I mean, it just really wasn't. So that was a major push to get computers going in, in the city. And then John Zuccotti, who's deputy mayor, um, creates the mayor's management report, which has to be issued twice a year. Now the city has to actually issue these big fat books. Every department has to kind of deliver numbers on certain things. How many things are this? How many things are that? And that begins a kind of sense of the city starting to get some sense of itself. And through the 80s, you get to a place where maps of the city that might have taken 30 hours for city planning to create suddenly become something they can do in an hour. And that means that the sanitation department can start to identify hot spots. They, you know, the city is, starts to be able to think about itself in a way that it hadn't been able to because it does kind of computerize in that way. And then under Giuliani, of course, the police who have been so far behind on this, mm -hmm. literally compiling crime data crime data annually, mm -hmm. which is not terribly useful when no. you think about it, right? So J Jack Maple and Bratton come in, and there's this push to deliver data on a weekly, now it's a daily basis at CompStat, this weekly meeting where people come in from every precinct and have to defend their stats, you know. Um, Giuliani begins to extend that out into other parts of city management, and then um, Bloomberg is, you know, the king of data. It's everywhere and used in very creative ways, kind of creating new solutions for problems we didn't even know we had. Let me come back to that Koch. Right. So he is a bit of a larger-than-life character, maybe a little bit of a P.T. Barnum in the city, a cheerleader for the city. And you talk about you know, what he inherits and what he builds, but then on the tail end, he's burdened by the tragedy of AIDS and other things that disproportionately and profoundly in a negative way impact the city. Right. Talk about his, his path. He, you know, he was... I remember just living here in the 80s, and it was he was the kind of mayor, having grown up in Chicago with Mayor Daley. Yes. 
I could like you could never imagine Chicago without Mayor Daley. Right. Like what was this? And and Koch was like that. It, at that time, it was a, kind of impossible to imagine right. New York without Ed Koch marching around, um, saying idiotic things and, and kind of spewing mm -hmm. things all over the place. But in this way that you're kind of like, yeah, you know. But then he had some real enormous blind spots, yes. and kind of surprisingly so. His reaction to AIDS, I've had pushback from people in the Koch administration, mm -hmm. you know, the numbers fairly square out that, you know, nothing, not a lot was done that could have been done. Mm -hmm. um, and on race, it is his huge, huge blind spot. Mm -hmm. And later in his life, he tried to kind of atone to, to admit that in cases like the Sydenham Hospital, which he shut down right. kind of just to make a statement, um, things that he did uh, on race that were incredibly negative and very divisive. Um, you know, I do think he realized it, but at the time, it really cleaved a, a big racial difference in the city, that the kinds of structures that existed where the Manhattan Borough President was knew was going to be an African-American. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these things went by the board, mm -hmm. and uh, it, was, it was incredibly devastating for the city in the long term. But perhaps it's for that reason that he does give rise to the opportunity for David Dinkins. Well, and, and also to be said, the other great thing that Koch does is the housing initiative right. with, with Mario Cuomo, the son who was governor at that time, um, you know, was to just say, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to change and to create housing for people. And, you know, it, it worked. Um, and, and we'll talk about this hopefully when we talk about crime, but I, I can't think of any program that has had a greater impact on the city in more different ways mm -hmm. than him saying, we're going to do whatever we can to connect communities with land, with building capital, mm -hmm. and make this happen. And it really worked. So was David Dinkins a transitionary mayor? You know, I, I mean, I think fundamentally, I think he, he was. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a lot of the things that worked well weren't necessarily Dinkins-led ideas. Mm -hmm. I think he tried to provide a conscience of sorts. Yes. There was a real kind of difference in his, uh, in his administration between Norman Steisel, who was very much a kind of bureaucratic administrator, and Bill Lynch, who was a great campaign guy. Mm -hmm. You know, really, really excellent campaign guy. And the politics got woven in with kind of the getting things done aspect. But in many cases, great things. The law that, um, you know, this is the early Dinkins years had the rotting of New York on Time Magazine. Right, right. And a very similar mode of how New York mm -hmm. is dead things happened that kind of climaxed with the, the murder of Brian Watkins, a guy from mm -hmm. Utah who was mm -hmm. at the U.S. Open. And that uh, got Dinkins, as well as the governor at the time, to really fire up policing and ask, what can we do? What do we need to do? And then it was passed was, I, sorry, it's Safe Streets, Safe Kids, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. was the law. And it provided the money for ultimately the cops that Giuliani would have to be able to apply when he came in. So, but let's, so let's, but let's go to Rudy Giuliani yeah. because he was, from my memory, and as you write about him, a different Rudy Giuliani than oh, the one yeah. we saw right. in, under President Trump. Right. And it was about about law and order. It was a lot about crime. We should talk about right. you know, that in the context right. of what he did. I mean, I, I, the thing to remember about Giuliani was that he really starts to appear in the late 80s when the city is just kind of corrupt. Mm -hmm. You know, Wall Street is, is stinky and greed is good and there's all kinds of the, the, the Bronx um, and Queens political machines, machines mm -hmm. are, are corrupt. And, and so Giuliani is this white hat guy who is like, justice, you know, and so he goes after Leona Helmsley, he goes after Wall Street, he 
goes after the mob, the pizza connection, who busts the mob. I mean, so he's really this guy who, no matter what, he's going after stuff, you know? And that was... Back now with the growing firestorm over vaccines in the NBA and what the sport's biggest star, LeBron James, revealed today after staying quiet on the issue for months. We get more from Sam Brock. The NBA's efforts to vaccinate all of its players just got a massive jolt from none other than LeBron James, who'd been silent for months. After doing my research and things of that nature, I felt like it was best suited for not only me, but for my family and for my friends. What does LeBron James' decision to get vaccinated mean for the NBA? That means the face of the league is now on board. LeBron James has always been a guy that's a trendsetter, an example setter, and this is no different. According to the NBA, around 90% of the league has reportedly received a shot. And the athletic Shams Charania says two marquee franchises, the Knicks and Lakers, will have fully vaccinated rosters by season start. But other big-name players are pushing back. Because it's none of your business. That's what it comes down to, <laughs> you know. Um, ask you guys about your beliefs. I mean, some people have bad reactions to the vaccine. Nobody likes to talk about that. The NBA doesn't require players to be vaccinated, but those sitting on the sidelines for shots will face more stringent testing and rules. New York and San Francisco are issuing the requirement for home teams, meaning any player on the Knicks, Nets, or Warriors who isn't vaccinated could risk missing all home games and docked pay by management. For some players, getting shots on the court means getting shots off of it, too. Sam Brock, NBC News. Up next for us here tonight, traveling overseas, our guide to what you need to know in the price you pay. It was a moment five years in the making. Barack and Michelle Obama breaking ground today on his new presidential library in Chicago. Construction has been long delayed by legal battles from residents who objected to placing the center in the city's historic Jackson Park. Obama has vowed it will be a benefit to the community. As more Americans consider traveling overseas once again, a look tonight at what you'll have to go through to book your trip, board a flight, and even go to a restaurant. Tom Costello is just back from a trip to Europe. While the U.S. has remained off-limits to most international visitors, Europe reopened to fully vaccinated Americans this summer, and it could get busier over the holidays. But before you even board a flight, you must upload your CDC vaccine card to the airline's website. Many countries' health departments also require it. Europeans use a phone app that displays their vaccination status. Bonjour. Americans can use their CDC cards, but don't forget it. Here in France, you need to show your CDC vaccine card to eat at a restaurant. You'll also show your card to get into art shows and sporting events. You even show your vaccine pass to go hiking through a French national park. We've had to show it to get on an airplane. We've had to show it to get into restaurants, museums, to any kind of public place. And it's fine. We're good with that. While the rules change often, most European countries do require Americans to provide proof of vaccination, but don't require further testing or quarantine. Though Sweden is not allowing Americans to fly directly from the U.S., and Britain still requires testing. Despite sporadic protests, Europeans generally support the mandates. Masks required in grocery stores, train stations, even some outdoor markets. If it means that we can travel, that's so be it. Returning home to the U.S. does require a test. 
So we're going to swap each nostril beginning with your left. I used one that I bought from the airline that requires a video call with the technician who verifies the results after 15 minutes. I see only one pink line on the test card. I think I'm negative. You have tested negative for COVID-19. COVID negative and free to fly home. Tom Costello, NBC News. And welcome back, Tom. Up next for us, the surprise reunion of two best friends inspiring America. With COVID keeping so many of us away from friends and loved ones over the past year and a half, the reunions are all the more sweet. Here's Kevin Tibbles. COVID is a real jerk. What are you doing? For a kid, it can steal your health, loved ones, even best friends. 11-year-old Stevie hasn't been able to see his pal Owen since Owen's family moved from Chicago to Missouri until now. What are you doing here? And it turned this day into 100% pure joy. <laughs> you just made my day. Kids know a thing or two about friendship. Describe the friendship. Um... I don't think I can because there's so many nice things to say about it. What's it been like not seeing him? Um, it's been hard because we ha we talk to each other over the phone. I really liked when we and him were able to play with each other, like in the park. Well, let's give Owen a call. All right. Hey, Owen. Hi. Constant companion since kindergarten, Owen traveled back to Chicago with his dad on a business trip and hid out in the back seat. It's amazing how a little video of kindness and friendship and emotion can really you know, make other people feel good. I feel like I'm dreaming. Because when you're with your BFF, you're on the top of the world, swinging on a star. <laughs> Kevin Tibbles, NBC News, Chicago. Made his day, made mine too. That's nightly news for this Tuesday. Thank you for watching. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night, everyone. It's a moment that stunned the world. Simone Biles is out of the competition tonight. Simone Biles now telling New York Magazine, it's like I jumped out of a moving train. After withdrawing from competition, the stars spoke openly. I was like... No, mental is not there, so I just need to let the girls do it and focus on myself. But she now says it was a long time coming. I should have quit way before Tokyo, when Larry Nasser was in the media for two years. It was too much. Nasser is the former teen doctor sentenced to life in prison after being accused of sexually abusing hundreds of young gymnasts, including Biles. In an exclusive interview before the games, Biles spoke to NBC News about being an abuse survivor. Even though I compartmentalized it, it slowly started to creep into everyday life, and it started affecting how I live. This month, Biles gave searing testimony before the U.S. Senate. I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. Behind-the-scenes video diary, now part of the Facebook docuseries Simone versus Herself, offer an intimate look at her struggles. I just feel like mentally I'm struggling. The star says she's now in therapy, a work in progress, but putting healing and herself first. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel.